Please open your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 2. And we'll be looking at a couple of different sections this morning. In Daniel chapter 2, last week we looked at verses 1 to 30. And we're going to primarily look at the second half of Daniel. But before we do that, we need some kind of setup because the interpretation of the dream that is given depends on what is or, or is made clear. The understanding of it is made clear earlier in the chapter. It's relevance to this time and to us. Well, before we enter into our study of God's word this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we, we simply ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together may be honoring and pleasing to you, our God and our Savior. And as we look in your word, we might see you. We may not merely have our curiosity satisfied, but that we might know you, our God. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. If you were to, this afternoon, this week, take a trip to New New Haven, Connecticut, and decide to walk the sprawling campus of Yale there. You might take a trip. You might walk over to Beinecke Library. It is a famous library. It is six stories tall. It is made entirely of granite, of marble. It is uh, not the, it is an artistically made building, but not the most attraction, uh, attractive building you will ever see. Um, It is six stories tall. It is windowless. It houses one of the world's great collections of historic books. It is incredible. The the age of some of the books that it has, the collection that it has, it is world-renowned for all that is there. But right next to it, there is, in that same plaza, there is a, a stone garden, a sunken stone garden that to look at, you will walk up to the edge and look down to. And when I say stone garden, what I mean is that there is no grass there. It is entirely of marble, a large structure. It it is meant to picture the universe, a self-contained unit. And in one corner of the sunken stone garden, you have a, what looks like a pyramid. And that, that symbolizes time. It symbolizes our, our world, but, but time is there. And in another corner, on its end, you have a, a donut-looking structure, like a circle with a hole in the middle, um, a donut-looking thing, and it's up on its end, and it is meant to picture the sun or energy in this universe. And then in another corner, you have a dice, like a dice that you would use or toss in a board game. A dice, and that dice is standing up on one pointed end, and it, it looks like it's like someone has just cast it, and it's spinning, and you don't know which way that dice is going to fall. And the image is artistically clear. In this self-contained unit is our universe. Our universe is an enclosed structure, and there is time, and there is energy, and ruling over it all is chance. Which way it turns, we don't know. The dice has been cast, and it could land any which way. 
that is really a, a, a great picture of how our modern world in our culture thinks of our universe. There is energy, there is time, and it's ruled over by chance. Nothing is in control except this toss of the dice. The modern world would have you and I believe that this universe is controlled by chance. From its very origin, that, that chance is what decides fate. That chance is what decides which way we go, which way things happen. You and I exist merely by chance. And if we exist, and if our world exists, and the universe exists purely by chance, then there can be no purpose. And if there is no purpose, then there can be no morality. There can be no good or bad, no right nor wrong, no good and evil, no beauty and ugliness. And if it is by chance, then there be need, and there need be no God. For what good is a belief in God in a universe that is governed by chance? Well, perhaps we might allow God to serve some kind of therapeutic purpose, right? He is here to help us feel good about ourselves. Religion is here to help us feel better, to get us through our day. But it is believed that no intelligent person really believes in an omnipotent God who rules over everything. And if it is chance that rules the world and you and I are merely products of chance, then the upshot of that is that you can't even trust your mind. Think about it. If, if you are products of chance and your mind is a product of chance, then your mind was not designed for you to think clearly about anything. It was not designed for you to think at all. It was merely, you're, you're merely a product of chance. You are not designed in any way. There can be no rationality. Your idea of what truth in reality is does not necessarily need to be true at all. Because you can't trust your mind, you certainly can't trust the, money, the minds of others either. You know, far from solving the problem of God, the idea that our world is a self-contained universe in which chance rules, it introduces all sorts of problems. What our text points us to today is a very countercultural belief. It was countercultural in the time of Nebuchadnezzar who wasn't so much chance that ruled the day. For them, it was his God and their set of deities. But it is countercultural for us today. What we find is, is the Lord introducing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. A few weeks ago, my brother came up from uh, South Carolina. He found an extraordinarily cheap flight, flew up, surprised me on a Friday, took me to a Phillies game. We enjoyed the whole thing. We got to the ninth inning, and um, I, I haven't been to a Phillies game in a long time, all right? The, the baseball games, the, the highest level of baseball I've attended um, is like the Reading Phillies, okay? So my grasp and my appreciation for the game, as you many of you know, is not nearly what um, real fans are. We got to, we're in this game, we're enjoying it, we get to the ninth inning, and uh, right before the Phillies pitcher comes out to pitch the ninth inning, the lights go off. Now, if you had been there in that stadium, if you've gone to Phillies games, you know that that's, that's kind of like the introduction for the closer for the Phillies. Craig Kimbrell, Kimbrell comes out, and the, the whole stadium is excited, and they, they play his walkout music. That's introducing this 
supposedly, great pitcher. This is all introducing our closer. Uh, My first time there, I, I thought maybe somebody had hit the power switch on the lights. I didn't know what was going on. But what we have in this passage is really God's walkout music, God introducing himself to Nebuchadnezzar and to Babylon. This is, this is God coming on the scene and declaring, this is who I am. And so here's what we see. We see first and foremost that God is supreme over all. He is supreme over all. That is, there is none like him. Five times in this chapter, Daniel will refer to God with the title, God of heaven. You see this in verse 18 and 19, that they may seek mercies from, he's calling his friends to pray with him, that they may seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this this secret, this dream. And then verse 19 at the end, so Daniel blessed, praised the God of heaven. And then we come to verse 28. But there is a God in heaven, Daniel declares to Nebuchadnezzar. There is a God in heaven who, de- who reveals secrets. And then in verse 37, we read this. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And then in verse 44, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. This title, God of Heaven, which is repeated here five times, isn't used for the rest of the book of Daniel. In fact, what you will find is that previous to the time of Daniel, it is used twice in all of Scripture, twice in the Old Testament. Once in Deuteronomy and again in one of the Psalms, but here in Daniel, he uses it five times. And from this point on, That title, God of Heaven, comes up again and again and again amongst the prophets and amongst the writers who are writing after the time of Daniel. I think this title comes to popularity at this time of Daniel's life. You can put yourself in his shoes. They have gone living in comfort, so to speak, in the land of Judah, in the land of Israel, where they are surrounded by, if not by faithful followers of God, at least by people who recognize who God is. But now he's in Babylon. Now he and his friends are alone. Now they are surrounded by a world that belittles their God. By all appearances, it looks as if their God is weak. He is powerless. Did not the God of of Nebuchadnezzar, Marduk, did he not defeat your God? What is your God? Turn to ours. And here we find this title, the God of heaven, emphasizing the supremacy of God over all people, over all things, coming into, coming to the surface. The very first thing that Daniel reminds us of, that Daniel needed to see, and that Daniel wants Nebuchadnezzar to see, is that there is a God, and he rules over all. He is supreme over all. He is greater than all. There is none like him. Whatever gods you may worship, they have no, they they do not measure up to the Lord. This is not the message that we will get from our world. Our world has a vested interest in us not believing this about our God. 
They want us to feel as if the world is beyond our control. That way they can stoke our fear, stoke our anger, stoke our anxiety, so that we will keep coming back for more. No, no, no title of any news report is merely something happened. It's always the most shocking thing that has ever happened. It's as if God does not exist. He is a non-starter. At least outside the walls of, of church on Sunday, God, God plays no part in the world. We get the feeling too often as if the real powers of the world find themselves in oval-shaped offices or in mar- marbled halls or, if, or in smoke-filled rooms where people in the media are deciding what gets reported on. Or what the next big tech company is going to do. But there's another strategy that the adversary makes to get us to practically deny the supremacy of God. And it's, it's not merely to live in fear of the world. It's not to believe that there is another power supreme in the world making decisions. Whether it is living in an office or behind the scenes. The other strategy to undermining the supremacy of God in the world is not to magnify the power of some individual or some group. It is to magnify your significance. To make you and I believe that life is all about us. What we think, what we feel, what we desire, what we want, what we are experiencing, what we have or don't have. And this is what social media does. It makes the circle of our lives revolve around us. It becomes, social media becomes our opportunity to be, to be the very best reporter on the most important subject in our lives. You and I. Look at what I've done. Look where I'm at. Look what I'm eating. Look what I just ate. We are the most supreme. We need this message. There is a God in heaven. He is supreme over all. He is supreme over us. Secondly, this God of heaven, supreme over all, he rules over all. Look with me as Daniel praises God. Remember, at this point, Daniel has gone to God with his friends. He has asked the Lord to help him know what the dream is, and then to be able to interpret it. So Daniel has received that knowledge already. And in response to that knowledge, this is what he praises God for. This is how you and I should respond to what we are going to see at the end of chapter 2, which is not typically when we read chapter 2, often Christians begin to break out the charts. Let's get into speculation. Daniel's response is worship. Look with me. Verse 20. Daniel answered and said, after he, he's praising the God of heaven, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. The seasons are in his hand. He changes it. Oh, we know that the seasons are a product of our earth, and it's not just the rotation of it, but as it goes around the sun. We, we got that. We know that scientifically. 
Daniel is no fool. And he may not know the ins and outs of how that works, but what he does know is this, that it is God who stands behind it all. It is God who rules and directs. It is God who is now at, now at this moment preserving and providing and providentially ruling over it all thing. Might we say that the seasons are going by natural forces that God has set in motion? Absolutely. And we also must say that it is God who is at this moment doing it. He changes it. The seasons are in his hands, but not just the seasons, the times. The times, the very ebb and flow of the world, the ages, they they rest in the hand of God. Rain, sunshine, cold, heat. All natural forces are under the control of God. Not just nature, but nations. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He removes them and sets them up. Think of just for a moment everything that is encapsulated in that line. All the removal of kings and leaders. All the raising of them up. In Nebuchadnezzar day that may have happened through natural birth. The next son, the next heir, they are raised in this line of nobility. In our day, it's a democratic process. Some of you you challenge that. God is the one who does it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Friends, I, I, I frankly don't care how we have voted this past election we must believe that the one who is in the Oval Office now is the one whom God has put there. That is always a hard truth. Do you think that was an easy truth for Daniel to to swallow as he is living under the rule and reign of Nebuchadnezzar, a godless, pagan, wicked, perverse king? But he sees that it's true. In the end, the existence of nations and the span of a leader's authority They're not due merely to, they're not due to social forces ultimately. They're due to the hand of God. He is sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over nations. He is sovereign over knowledge. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Is someone wise? Are you wise? It's because the Lord has given you wisdom. Do you have knowledge about something? It's because the Lord has given you that knowledge. Certainly we may and we must work to grow in wisdom and knowledge. We read earlier that Daniel does. He is trained. He is he along with his friends, they are trained. They go through that period of intense scrutiny and And at the end of it, Daniel is able to say, it is God who gave us the knowledge, God who gave us the wisdom. God is sovereign in wisdom and knowledge, and he is the one who makes things known. That's what Daniel is praising God for. You are the one who has done this. You are the one who not only gives wisdom and knowledge theoretically, you have done that practically at this moment. No one and nothing else could have made these things known except you. And there's this line in here. I I love it. He knows what is in the darkness. You know, God doesn't tell us everything that is going to happen. This dream 
is just the very sketch of the future. God doesn't give this dream to Nebuchadnezzar so that Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel could have the inside track on how they should be investing, on where they should build and what decisions they should make. God doesn't give us that information. He doesn't tell us, hey, there is this tech company. It's selling for really low right now, but if you'll invest now, it'll pay off dividends. He doesn't tell us you need to buy this house or not buy this house or go here or not go here. Those are things that are in the dark, but the Lord knows. God knows it all. His sovereign wisdom, he chooses what to reveal and what to keep hidden. And everything he reveals, he gives for our good so that we will learn to trust him. So what we are called to do is not to trust in what we know or worry about what we don't know, but to live with the confidence in the, in the God who knows all things and is above all things and controls all things. So God is supreme and he is sovereign over nature, over nations, over knowledge. And so Daniel praises the Lord. And this leads us to see the interpretation, the dream and the interpretation at the end of Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 31. Read with me. I'll read verses 31 to 35. This is the dream itself. This is what Nebuchadnezzar dreams. You, O king, were watching. And behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor, brightness was excellent, stood before you and its form was awesome. That is frightening, terrifying. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you watched, here he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The first thing that Daniel sees is this frightening statue. It's, it's of immense size. We're not given the size here. It is quite possible that in Daniel... Uh, in, the future chapter in Daniel chapter 3, no, Daniel chapter 4, no, Daniel chapter 3, the next chapter, we see Nebuchadnezzar himself raising up this image. And it may be that that image is patterned after this one. But he sees this huge, vast image, and it terrifies him. It is bright, and it's made up of different metals. The head is gold, the chest and arms are of silver, its stomach and its Legs, thighs are bronze. Its uh, shins, feet are made of iron. The, the feet and toes being made of an iron mixed with clay, a hardened clay, kind of a, which would have made it vulnerable, fragile, both fragile and strong at the same time. And then he sees a stone that is cut away from a mountain and there is no, there is no hand that cuts it away. There, it is simply a part of the mountain, and then it is brought out, and that stone strikes the feet of this image. 
And the result of this image is that the, the, the entire image, beginning with the feet, is completely shattered. And then, like the title of that great movie, Gone with the Wind, it is simply blown away like chaff in the air. And this sets off a domino image. Like from the feet onward, you can just imagine it is disintegrating and the wind carrying it away. That's the picture that Nebuchadnezzar sees here. You can understand why this dream troubled Nebuchadnezzar. It's not a normal dream. It's not merely, you know, I was falling off a cliff and, you know, I woke up. What does that dream mean? It means you're afraid of falling, right? This dream had some meaning to it, and he understood that. And then Daniel gives the meaning of that dream, verses 36 all the way to 45. Why don't you follow along as I read? Verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and he has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, then another third, then another and a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the, king, all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will, be, will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever and ever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And then notice how... Nebuchadnezzar responds in verses 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering, an incense to him. Here we see Nebuchadnezzar, he is worshiping the wrong person. And then he, write, and then he says to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. What we see is that these, as Daniel tells us, These parts of the statue represent future kingdoms to Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is that head of gold, and it would be replaced by silver, an inferior metal, and that would be the next kingdom. 
the Medes and the Persian Empire. And then following that, you have Greece, Alexander the Great conquering. And then the Rome would be the legs of iron that breaks and shatters and crushes everything. And then you have this question about what is the feet of iron and clay. Because this is what the, the stone strikes. And there is, uh, there is vast amount of disagreement over what this pictures. I'll tell you what I believe and what is the right thing, okay? At this point, we, we are entering into, we, we should enter in very humbly here, all right? I think I'm right, but I could be wrong. I think what we're looking at here is if, if all of those kingdoms, this ends with Rome, that legs of iron ends with Rome, then you have the entrance of the stone. Uh, so on one level, those who will interpret, to, interpret this kind of figuratively or spiritually, they will say these feet of iron and clay, this is the, this is the divided kingdom of, of, of Rome. You have the Roman, you have the Roman uh, as it was, a republic represented by the legs of iron, and then this would be the Roman Empire, which would be clay and, uh, and iron mixed together, both strong and brittle, and it will soon fracture. And that very well may be the case. But they, they interpret this figuratively, uh, spiritually, in such a way that that stone, which we know is, is Christ, this, this stone that is coming is the kingdom of God. It's going to come. It's going to strike these feet. And they would say then that we are now living under this kingdom. This is growing and growing and one day will be established by Christ on earth. But that falls short in a number of areas. One of which is that the description here that we have of this kingdom growing and growing and growing, the the evidence of that doesn't seem to be effective. It, It would be unusual for us to have physical kingdom after physical kingdom after physical kingdom after physical kingdom and then all of a sudden spiritual kingdom, invisible kingdom. So I think what we're looking at here is a continuation of this physical kingdom. And here what we're looking at, I believe, is these, these feet of both iron and clay mixed together is depicting yet a future physical kingdom, a coalition perhaps, a coalition that is both fragile and strong. And it is at that time that Christ will come and he will establish his kingdom on earth. He will break the nations. On one level, Christ has come, and he, his kingdom is here. It is already working. But I think Daniel is pointing us to the fact that there is coming a day when the kingdom of Christ will be established, and it will so work. And when it is established, that every, every shred and every trace of physical kingdoms here on earth will be demolished and swept away. So that what we have is all of Christ reigning in glory and goodness on earth. And that is something that is not yet happening. What we find is that these kingdoms, even as they are expanding, there is evidence of expanding. One kingdom will give way to another which will grow and then another kingdom which will grow after this. And these, the picture of these kingdoms is picked up again in chapter 7 when... These kingdoms are reimagined and pictured in different ways. Yet they are growing here. In another sense, they are also not only growing progressively and expanding, they are growing and progressively becoming inferior to one another. That is, just as you've got gold is greater than silver and silver greater than bronze, so you have this 
This picture of degeneracy, that is, it is becoming, even though the kingdoms may be growing in power, they may be growing in prestige, they may be growing in, in prosperity, they may be growing in how ex- expanded they are, yet there is a sense in which they are degenerating over time. There is this idea in our world that as time goes forward, we as humans are evolving, we are getting better, things are going to get better. And this comes in the scene, and it just erases that view. Humanity is not on a self-improvement project. The history of trajectory, the history, sorry, the trajectory of history isn't pointed up. And all of these kingdoms, they end, they are temporary, they are passing If every nation, including ours, has a birth date that we can celebrate, every nation will have an expiration date. Even those nations that appear to be unstoppable. This text points us to... It doesn't just merely point us back in history. It points us to the future kingdom of Christ the stone not made of hands, the stone which is the kingdom of God. And just as the stone not made of hands comes, so the kingdom is not of human origin. It is not the product of human effort. That it is, this goes against this, this idea that if we as Christians can establish a Christian nation and expand the boundaries of our power and influence abroad, then we can introduce the, the, the kingdom of God, then we can tempt the kingdom of God until Christ comes and establishes. What we find here is that the kingdom of Christ is not of human origin. It is not the product of human effort. But it comes. And the real question of this dream is, why does God give it? I mean, what, why bother Maybe you've never asked that of of Daniel chapter 2. We can get so engaged with the study of Daniel 2 and the kingdoms and the the different kinds of material and what the statue might mean and what, are there ten toes and does that mean something in the two legs and all the different features. And where are we? None of that means anything. The more important question is why is it here? Why does God bother giving Nebuchadnezzar this dream at all? What does it, what is it for? I mean, think about it. Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, they can't do anything with this information, right? Nebuchadnezzar can't make himself prosper any more than what he's been told. Daniel can't say, okay, because of this, I can do this. Do you remember back when Joseph is given the dream to interpret the dream for Pharaoh? What is the upshot of it? Daniel is given the interpretation of the dream. Pharaoh is given the dream so that the people of Egypt might be saved through the wisdom of, through the wisdom of Pharaoh. I'm sorry, through the wisdom of Joseph. God gives the interpretation to Joseph to save his people so that they can do something with that information. There's nothing to do here. There is no practical upside. This purpose isn't to satisfy his curiosity. Neither Nebuchadnezzar nor Daniel were asking for it. They weren't seeking this information out. It just 
it, it surprised them. It was all of grace. And it's not given to reward them in any way. So why does God give this dream? I think there are two reasons. The first, let's make it three reasons. The first is he is positioning Daniel in a place of prominence. That's what we see at the very end, isn't it? Daniel is able to reveal this dream. He's able to reveal not only the dream, but the interpretation. God is maneuvering things so that he can put Daniel exactly where he wants him. At the beginning of this chapter, Daniel is being ripped out of his bed, remember? Middle of the night, men come in, swords, torches. They're they're going to execute everyone. By the end of this chapter, Daniel and his friends are being given high honors. Daniel is being put where God wants him. But not only was he being put where God wants him, Daniel himself is given assurance. Israel has been conquered. By all appearances, it looks like Israel's powerless, but that, that his God, that their God is powerless. Do you think that I've ever felt to those who were in exile? That their God was powerless too? Why else would all these things have happened? And in Daniel being positioned where God wants him, he is being put in the position in which he will be able to declare to the nations what we read earlier. Our God reigns. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach glad tidings. Daniel was put exactly where God wanted him. Friends, so are you. Only you have the friends that you have. Only you have the neighbors that you have. Only you have the contacts that you have, the work that you have. You are where God has put you. That may not be where you want to be, and it may not be where you will always be, but you are there now. And so even as you are seeking to follow God and maybe in praying and hoping for change, trust and leverage all the trials, all the suffering, all the good things, leverage, leverage it all for the glory of God to make him known, to declare to others, our God reigns. And that leads us to this third thing. But the primary purpose of God in sending this dream so that he can position Daniel exactly where he wants him, so that he can assure Daniel exactly what Daniel needs to to remember, that his God is on the throne. The primary purpose of this dream is redemptive. This tells us something about God's plan for Nebuchadnezzar. God is seeking to make himself known to this guy. He wants Nebuchadnezzar to know him. And that starts with Nebuchadnezzar being convinced of these things. Think of chapter 3. The the image is built. Nebuchadnezzar builds the image. He calls everyone to worship it. Daniel's three friends refuse in anger. Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the furnace. And what does he see? He sees out of that hole 
instance, that whole account, Nebuchadnezzar comes to see that their God is one who saves those who hope in him. Those who, he, he is one who saves by his own presence those who trust in him. And then in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he is himself, after his great pride, he is struck down with an affliction so that he, he acts and believes himself to be an animal. And for seven years he is humbled. And God gives him back the right thinking, his right mind once again. And he himself confesses that God saves and he lifts up those who are humble and contrite before him. Friend, what we find is that all of that begins here. Nebuchadnezzar must see that there is a God who reigns over all, who is supreme over all, who is sovereign over all. One of the most basic building blocks of the Christian faith is that God is supreme and that he is sovereign. Friend, if you're not a Christian... Maybe you have thought, many who are Christians have sometimes feared that God was simply a crutch for them. He's simply a crutch for the faithful to get through a week, to get through a day. Others treat God as if he is a genie. Say the right prayers, do the right things, God will give you whatever you want. Many see God as serving merely a therapeutic purpose. He makes us feel better. Or a moral purpose. He makes us want to live better lives. Friends, God simply is. He is supreme over all. He is sovereign over all. He rules and he reigns over all. Jesus shall reign. And it may not appear like it now, and it certainly didn't didn't appear this way to Daniel, the beginning of chapter 2. And it certainly didn't look this way when Jesus was hanging on the cross. But he reigned then on the cross. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. And not only does he lay down his life, he takes it up again. And friend, that's the gospel. That's our God who rules over life and death itself. Who expresses his sovereignty even as he suffers on the cross. He is not a victim of the nations. The nations accomplished his sovereign purpose to save. And the scriptures declare that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is on Christ Jesus, that stone. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And one day, friend, you will answer to him. And you will either trip over that stone, you will either be crushed by that stone... Or you will trust, you will follow, you will be upheld by it. What will you do with Jesus? Brothers and sisters, we need this today. 
the whole world at times feels broken. Recent polls show that Americans have had loss, an enormous loss of confidence in our institutions. And is there any surprise as to the reason for that? We need to remember that our God reigns. There's an old poem that this passage of Daniel reminds me of. Towers of a broken statue found in the desert. Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive. Stamped on those lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these, weird, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside me remains. Round, nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. All the nations of this world look mighty. They appear powerful. They appear indestructible. Look on my works and despair. But one day, the greatest powers of the world, just like Babylon, will lie buried beneath ages of dirt. They will one day be shattered and broken, almost forgotten. And in its place will be God's forever kingdom. And Christ will be our forever king. Young men and women, don't waste your lives living for the flash and the sizzle and the glamour of this life. Don't waste your life for the things of this kingdom. There is a kingdom that is coming, and when it comes, everything will be wiped away. Serve Christ. Commit yourself to his people, to building up one another, to serving one another. A life given in service to King Jesus is not a wasted life. That is a life well used. Men and women live in light of that kingdom. What a waste to live merely for the things of this life this brief existence. Invest in that kingdom. Whether you are in the beginning of your life or whether the two-minute mark has sounded, leverage it all for King Jesus that we may declare with our lips and with our lives, our God reigns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for living so often as if you do not reign. As if there are other forces in this world that are greater than you. Father, forgive us for our 
fear-fueled anger, fear-fueled anxiety. Oh God, help us, our Father, to remember your supremacy, your sovereignty, your mercy in Christ. Help us to remember that because Christ has come, because he does reign now, he will reign on this earth in the future. Help us to live in light of that day, to have that hope. Oh, Father, have mercy on us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.